were intentional about creating community. We center our community on like healing and safety and thinking about like what would a survivor feel when walking through our doors or when interacting with a member of our team. Whereas like in the South Asian diaspora, I don't think we're as intentional when we're in those sort of like one-on-one relationships or just even like large friendship groups. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. Today, I interview Gavita Mera, a nonprofit leader with 20 years of service and a deep commitment to fostering cultural change. She is currently the executive director for Sucky for South Asian Women, a survivor-led gender justice organization whose goal is to eradicate gender-based and domestic violence. Sucky is really changing the conversation on gender-based violence in our community and is uniting survivors and institutions to work together. She really opens up about her own journey and why she knew she wanted this role years before she got it. Saki is celebrating 35 years and they have done so much to help our community. It is absolutely mind-blowing. I cannot tell you how much I truly appreciated her honesty and authenticity. People like her are why I love doing this podcast. What a leader. I hope you guys enjoy my interview with Kavita Mera. How's the year started? How's everything been going for you? Work-wise, it's been really busy. Personally, I'm just coming off of last week I was in Vegas. And so I saw the U2 concert, which I think is my eighth or ninth concert of theirs that I've seen. My sisters are 12 and 13 years older than I am. And one of my sisters, I think she's been to 31 concerts. And my other sister has been to like 25. But we're huge U2 heads. So like I got to go with my sisters and my mom. So it was really amazing. How fun. I went in October. I was about to say, I think I tied with one of your sisters, but only at eight. 31, no way. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It was mind-blowing. I still... Yeah, I'm like, wow, that was that was an experience. One of my favorite songs, top two, is uh, All I Want Is You, and I've never heard them play it live. They never play it live, and so the fact that they played it was just, it was really incredible. That was my wedding song. Oh, love that. Yeah. Oh, I love that Yeah, so, so it was much. the first time, the first time I heard it was October. Yeah, that's amazing. Sweetest thing was Tears. our- Tears, you know, Tears. <laughs> I could imagine. Sweetest thing was our engagement song, which- I've never heard live, but hopefully one day we'll get to. I love that video because he, his wife was in that video. He, he, she's never in anything. And he wrote that song for her. And yeah, I, all my friends went back actually in January for it and I wasn't able to go. But yeah, I've told everyone, I'm like, even if you're not a YouTube, like huge fan, if you like something about them, yeah. go. It's totally, totally worth yeah, it. So. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're in recovery now. I'm totally in recovery. And I was doing dry January as well as half of dry February before my trip. So I'm going back to <laughs> detoxing <Not>. now. <laughs> yeah. uh, I have to detox a little from Vegas, but Vegas was amazing. So I'm officially a Vegas convert. If you do it right, it's totally someplace you can go a few times a year. There's just so much going on. I did a light January and February. I'm, I'm doing light now. I'm doing four drinks a week, max. That's like my max. I think I quit the first, I mean, I was dry the first two weeks, whatever, just to take a break. And then I was like, you know, 
I'm not going to kid myself and try to go for, for a long time, but four drinks a week has been perfect. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very like healthy balance. Even that I feel like totally different. I feel like so much better, even though I'm drinking just a little bit, but if I know I have an event, like I know I'll have two or three there, that's it then. And then I'll have like maybe one while I'm cooking or something, but it's kind of a nice balance. Like I'm feeling good about this process. I enter 2024 very sober curious. So let's see how the rest of the year rolls out. I think a lot, it's a lot of people that are sober curious right now. And not just because of the new year, it's been like happening quite a bit. So my husband has been sober for two months now. He's not, he's not missing it. He thinks he can go the whole year now. Yeah. Yeah. Like really when it's out of your system, it's out of your system. I think I want to get there eventually, but I'm not going to force it. I'm going to just do it when I'm ready. And I still enjoy a nice class. So I'm like, you know what? When I'm ready, I'll, I'll know. Um, but I do like the drinking light. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. It's yeah. Nice. Yeah. It's a transition <laughs> like anything else. It is. It is for sure. So last time I saw you was October, right? Was it October? Was the event? The and summit, is that the first yeah. time we met in person? No, we met before that, right? We might have. Maybe like the White House? I don't know. Was not invited to the White House yet. Oh, okay. Then I must do that. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Don't feel, don't at all feel bad about it. I'm totally, it's totally fine. It just felt like when I met you, I had known you somehow. We must have crossed paths. I've been in and out of New York living there a couple times and so... It must, it must be something. Let's start with, with your role and, and kind of current projects and what you guys are doing now. So I know you are the executive director of Sucky for South Asian Women, and you have been in this role for six, seven years now. You started in 2017. Is that right? Yeah, June will be seven years. That's crazy. Okay. So kind of tell me how you got into the role and your impetus for joining this group? Because, you know, I was obviously researching on the website. I know it was founded in 89. I actually used to work, like did, did some volunteer work with Malika, Malika, Dutt. Mm -hmm. At Breakthrough or at Saki? At Breakthrough. My second year of law school. So I'd come to New York for a internship and I volunteered with her like on the, in the evenings and weekends. And so got to know her. And then I saw her name on the site, I was like, oh my gosh, I totally forgot that she, she's done so much. Can't keep track. So yeah, she's an icon in the movement. She's one of our five co-founders. I came into this role, so in the fall of 2002, I was a university student here in New York. Saki was the very first place I ever interned. And at that time, we used to host our gala in the fall. And I remember being at that event with my boyfriend, who's now my husband, and turning to him and saying, I want to be the next Purvi Shah, who was our executive director. And then he retorted with, no, you're going to be the next Gavita Mera. And I've wanted this job as ED since the fall of 2002. And I've been working towards this role through the trajectory of my career. I spent over two decades in the nonprofit sector. I had applied for this job twice. The first time I didn't even get an interview. I was very happy that I got granted an interview the second time around and made it through the process. And they offered me the position in the spring of 2017. I started in 2017, right at the beginning of the Trump administration. And that was something that like, I fully wasn't prepared for in terms of uh, the impact it would have had in our community and how much 
particularly survivors in our community, were feeling a sense of fear and isolation in the midst of that administration. And then the fall of that year in 2017 is when Me Too went viral. And so it just was this compounding snowball effect because immediately after Me Too going viral and bringing amplifying the experience of survivors across the country, just a few short years later, COVID happened. And after COVID, there's been a pretty significant rise of violence across the country, particularly for survivors of violence and deaths, particularly. So we've seen just one form of tragedy or one form of like heightened amount of trauma impacting our community layered on top of another last few years. But I've loved this journey and it's been an incredible experience. I really I feel very grateful every day for this role. I can imagine you as the ED had to kind of learn how to reinvent things. I think it's being able to like read the room, seeing what's around the corner and then pivoting quickly, especially in the midst of crisis. So one of the things that's pretty unique to our organization and working with immigrant communities is like what's happening at the national level is often impacting us in some capacity. So like here in New York City, we're talking a lot about like the migrant crisis. What most folks don't know is that there is a portion of South Asians who are part of that community, that migrant community. What was the percentage of that, do you think? It's very new data, it's, but we're starting to receive calls from individuals who are part of that migrant community who have recently come into New York City and are looking for services. And so this is something that we're organizationally starting to now prepare for. But we saw this coming months ago. We had actually even just co-authored a press release around this specifically calling out Mayor Adams and wanting to proactively think about how do we create safety for these communities, because we know that there are survivors of violence who are in this migration pattern. So let me rewind a little bit back, because you guys are doing, it feels like a lot of different programs and focusing on, kind of holistically focusing on a lot of things. And so you do service delivery, community engagement, advocacy, policy initiatives, And I've looked at your timeline since it launched in 89 and kind of the highlights of each year. And there's just so many amazing highlights and milestones. So just for example, recently you've raised money the past few years, a lot more investment coming in and expanded your helpline for survivors. If you can break down the programs maybe that you guys are working on right now and what you're focusing on. Yeah, and that's such a great summary, but just to take a step back, So we imagine transformative change happening within the South Asian community by three mechanisms working together. Our direct work with survivors, community engagement, and advocacy, which is really centered around like systems change and policy work. The greatest amount of growth that Seki has experienced over the last, I want to say like seven years, has been our direct work with survivors. We transitioned from an organization that went from primarily doing crisis management and economic support for survivors to thinking more holistically about all of the multiple barriers that are within a survivor's life and how do we bring those services in-house. So to speak more specifically, we have a crisis management team that immediately works with a survivor around immediate advocacy and working with them around like legal support, translation services, any form of like immediate need that they have. That individual, that advocate will work with a survivor then to assess, does this individual need housing? Does this individual need access to food? Does this individual need job coaching, job readiness? Does this individual need mental health counseling? And all of those services are now in-house at Sucky. We work with survivors starting at the age of six until the very elderly. And we do youth mental health counseling, which makes us 
unique for many of the South, many organizations within the South Asian community. What most folks don't know is that the experience of survivorship is the one social justice issue that really is threaded throughout the South Asian diaspora. 48% of South Asian Americans have experienced gender-based violence through the course of their lifetime. So if it's not one has experienced it, they know someone who has experienced it. It truly is the one issue that is across our community. And what's unfortunate is that we don't see that same level of mobilization and rally of support around really addressing the issue. One of the things that I find particularly inspiring about the South Asian community is that when there is activation to mobilize change, it happens. And what we're hoping for, what we're aiming to do is really mobilize the community in a way to say, like, this shouldn't be an overwhelming statistic. The statistics shouldn't be higher than the national average. It's a responsibility on, on all of us to be able to address it. So let's be honest. I think it's because it's higher than the national average probably due to our culture and our beliefs. I'm assuming that's a big part of it. Yeah, I don't think that we're a more violent community. I think what we have been able to do effectively is silence the experience of survivorship and it's become more ingrained. And because it's become ingrained, it's become intergenerational. And so it's normalized and it's unfortunate, but it is, it is the reality in which we work in. And so like, how do we denormalize it? This isn't right. I'm going to ask you some kind of dumb questions just to make sure. So when we talk about domestic violence, domestic abuse, I want to just get down to the definition of it. I'm assuming, again, assuming is the, is the main word here, is the key word, that most of these survivors have experienced physical abuse and most of them are female. Is that right? So we work with survivors of gender-based violence. Let's break down the terms before we dive into all of it. Gender-based violence is any form of violence that one experience as a result of their gendered identity. That's the broad umbrella term. And so if we were to just break that down a little bit, what falls under that broad umbrella is domestic violence. Domestic violence is violence that happens within the domestic space. That can look like intimate partner violence, so two people who are in intimate relationship. That can look like elder abuse, which means that someone who is elderly living in a home is experiencing violence from their children or someone in, someone else in the household. That can look like child abuse, which is specifically, you know, a caregiver engaging in violence against a child. That can look like domestic worker, you know, someone who is a domestic worker experiencing violence in the home. So anything within the domestic space. We also work with individuals who have experienced sexual violence. And so this can rest outside of the domestic space which could include forms of sexual harassment, whether that's on the street, whether that's in the workplace, whether that's also within the scope of an intimate partner relationship, but they're not necessarily living together. You know, sexual violence can really happen in, in any manifestation. And then we, we've, we work with individuals have, who have experienced like violence as a result of their gendered identity that is at like the community level. We've definitely seen a rise of violence against members of our community who present as Muslim after October 7th, right? And so there has been a rise of anti-Muslim hate, Islamophobia, anti-Sikh hate that's happened here in New York City. And of course, there was a, there was a significant spike after 9-11. So we, we are working with, with survivors in that capacity. So it's a really broad term, but it is a form of violence that we work with survivors, again, of gender-based violence across all genders and sexuality. So while our name is Saki for South Asian women at this point in time, 
we also recognize that like all members of our community experience violence. And so our responsibility is to be a, a space of healing for all those individuals. That's great. I mean, just out of curiosity, would you guys ever consider changing that name to make it more inclusive? Yes. Okay. And <laughs> sorry, actually, did, did I hit on something you're not supposed to talk about? <laughs> no, well, we're actually uh, we're at the tail end of a rebrand. So this is our 35th anniversary, and we will have a new brand identity by end of April. And so I'm very excited about that. It's been several years in the making, so it's really, really exciting. You can't reveal it yet. Damn it. I would love okay. to, but I can't. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. It makes sense that you would rebrand to, to make it more inclusive. And it made sense that it started off for that sucky for South Asian woman back in the 80s. I think the South Asian fem or the, the feminist movement just looked very different, right? And like, so while we will inherently be always a feminist organization, that doesn't mean that we won't be inclusive of all genders. Those two things can coexist. Right. I mean, just listening to everything that you guys are doing, I know this is just the tip of the iceberg that you told me, but do you ever feel like you guys are spread too thin? This is like a lot of different situations and people and so many different avenues that you guys are kind of in and helping. Do you feel like you're able to fully help? does feel like our growth has been very intentional and strategic. So we went from a staff size of 11 people to about 45 people in six and a half years. Our budget also correspondingly grew from about 800,000 to 5.5 million. And also, I think that we have the opportunity to do so much more. Because the South Asian community has the second largest population here in New York State, just after California, and we know that 48% of South Asian Americans have experienced gender-based violence in their lifetime. We know that the experience of this particular issue is overwhelming. And culturally responsive services are absolutely necessary for an individual through their healing journey because they're just such nuances. I will tell you, like, you know, I was born and raised in New Jersey, and I've been in therapy for years. And on a like a super personal level, right? Like my therapist understands the challenges of being a, like what I experienced as a South Asian American in a way that allows me to help work through my healing process, right? Like my healing and, and, and the stuff that comes up for me. So I can only imagine that for members of our community, especially more recent immigrant mem members of our community, having culturally responsive services will only further facilitate in their healing journey. I think it's an absolutely critical need. And I think the need is we're just a drop in the bucket for like what what we can do. I'm going to challenge you with a thought. What you're saying totally makes sense. I'm just, I was just thinking personally for me or, you know, and, and girlfriends or any, any friends I've talked to, a lot of the times we discuss how hard it is to open up to people in our community in general. Forget about therapy or whatever, just, you know, friends or how it always feels like with other South Asians, it's not as easy to open up. Now, obviously, you're an organization that's built for this. I'm just wondering, do you see any hesitancy of South Asians coming to you guys because of judgment? Because of that fear of judgment that sometimes our community has? Sorry. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a really great question. And that that reality is so real, right? Because I think there's so much on the South Asian community about the presentation of one's life and not the reality of one's life. That's spot on. One of the things I think makes 
organizations like Second Unique is that we're intentional about creating community. So we center our community on like healing and safety and thinking about like what would a survivor feel when walking through our doors or when interacting with a member of our team. Whereas like in the South Asian diaspora, I don't think we're as intentional when we're in those sort of like one-on-one relationships or just even like large friendship groups. But that experience of like showiness or like the pre- presentation of one's life is, is it's very real and I get it. Very real, right? And I know all of us experience it day to day, you know, with, with our South Asian communities, our own circle of friends. I feel like it's getting worse for some reason. I don't know if, if it is or not. I feel like I am a little bit more closed off to open up. Besides this podcast, <laughs> this is when I'm the most open. But yeah, it's it's a real thing. And I'm, yeah, I was just curious as to how you guys would deal with that. Yeah, I mean, on a personal note, that like totally resonates. I mean, I, I've had to delete Instagram for like weeks on end, especially during certain seasons of the year, like the Valley, you know, just because it can feel really overwhelming. It can feel suffocating. It could feel like an outsider. It doesn't feel like people are living real lives. Hey, trust me, I I felt like an outsider since I was born, and I have now fully embraced it. And I'm like, I'm good with this. It's good. It's totally fine. The right energy and the right people come to you. Why did you feel like an outsider most of your life? Even though I have a lot, lot of South Asian friends, and I have a great crew, and I have a, you know, a lot of great girlfriends, but I don't know, growing up in general with the South Asian community in Houston... I was always a little bit awkward. I was so like, if you're not girly, you know, I was such a tomboy. All those little things mattered where I didn't feel like I could be like an Indian girl, like quote unquote, a proper Indian girl. I was always with the boy. So like stuff like that. I think for me, I've always led with my personality as my kind of strength versus like anything physical. For me, it was so important to be funny and like boisterous and loud. And I, I don't think that was considered cool in the Indian girl crew. You know what I'm saying? So just, I don't know, little things like that where I've carried it with me. Again, I have the best of friends and it's, it's all good. But I've always grown up feeling like, okay, I'm not the typical Indian girl. Not that I'm better than them. It's just, I don't really belong. Mm-hmm, and it's, mm-hmm, it sounds definitely. silly, but it matters when you're that age. It totally does. I've carried that narrative in my head for this long. And I know it's not true now. I know it's stupid, but it's hard to shake childhood narratives. You can't, you can't yeah. do it. And so you can't um, do it. I'm trying though. I'm trying. But when I, whenever I do get those moments on Instagram and, you know, any social media stuff like, like you talked about, hundred percent. I go back to being 12. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, I feel like many of us don't shake that 16 year old, you know, 14 year old awkward self. And then we all of a sudden have a middle-aged woman looking back at us in the mirror. And <laughs> like, How did this happen? Oh, I was like, wait, why do I still feel left out? Like I have two kids and a <laughs> husband and yeah, what, what am I doing? But it's real. And I think it's really strong for a lot of us. I've been really telling myself like, and we have like a very simple, humble life and I am very grateful for it. But I keep telling my partner, like, Jay, I feel like we have like a pretty amazing life. Everything I've ever wanted is right here. I have a roof over my head and food in my stomach. And like, I have a kid who I really love and a partner who's pretty dope, like, and a job that I like, how, what else can I ask for? 
But like, seriously, like what else can one ask for? Like, I, I really started to think about this a lot at the end of last year. And then more intentionally this year, it's been a helpful like mind shift. Like, I don't really need much else. Yeah, I, I am 100% with you. This is everything I've asked for. And more than I thought, you know? And so, and for you especially, being in the industry you're in, being the executive director of this organization, it must remind you a lot of what you have. Because also, I mean, I'm a, I'm a survivor of trauma. You know, I'm a survivor very much. And like, I've shared publicly, like my life, my mother's life, my sister's life would have looked, my sister's lives would have looked very different had Saki been in it. And I think had we had this resource, I think I would have had a community where I wouldn't have felt so alone. And so like isolated and awkward in my experience of how unhappy and how violent our household was. And so for many years of my life, I lived in the trauma of like what could have been, what should have been and what was. And then I think more recently, like I was saying, like I realized that like I can choose to live in the trauma or I can like continue to try and live in the healing. Yeah. Good for you. It's hard. It's not, I mean, it it takes a a lifetime. Yeah. I'm 41, right? Like it took me (laughs) until 41 to find And it's still going to, it's still, you're still going to evolve. And so when you said that you knew since 2002 that you wanted to be in that role, I was going to ask you, why did you know? How did you know in your core? And so now that you mentioned your childhood and growing up, would you be okay talking about what happened and, and personally why it pushed you towards this role? You know, without sort of like getting into like the details too much, I think one of the things that I continuously felt that was this deep sense of isolation, this deep sense of like instability, this deep sense of like how unsafe our lives felt consistently and having to navigate around that. And like, I have a relationship with both my parents now and, and my, my father's 88 years old and he's a very different person than he is, was at even 78. And so just also reconciling a lot of that, like has been a journey for me, but it was like a really, really shitty and hard childhood. And like, I left to go to college and I never moved back to my parents' house. It was really hard for me to come to terms with like, my mom never leaving my dad, you know, and it even comes up again. Like, why don't you, why don't you leave? Like, this is unhealthy. Why don't you leave? And what is she like? She's like, he's 88. I'm 81. What am I going to do now? Do you understand her more now though, after having, I'm assuming multiple discussions? I think I have a deeper sense of empathy for the struggles that she experienced. And I mean, she had just such a hard, hard life. And a deep sense of appreciation. And like, I think my sense of like wishing she was able to make different life choices for herself and its impact on me, I think I've like forgiven, you know, or not, not that I need, was, she was asking for forgiveness, but like I've let go, you know, I've been able to like really process and there's part of me that's shifting. It's very much in this shifting phase to say like what I've experienced and the difficulty of my life that I've experienced have also helped me become the person I am today. I mean, not to sound corny, but it feels like you, this was your calling, like everything you had gone through. Yeah. I feel like this has been a part of a journey. Like this experience of working at Saki has been incredibly healing for me. When I entered this role, I entered the role with the intention in mind to say like, this organization has the opportunity to do so much more. And 
impact so many more lives in a much more holistic way. Like, how do we get there? Because I knew if, if we had some of these resources, like even just therapy as kids. Right. Which wasn't really around. That, yeah, that wasn't exactly. even an option. Like, how could you even know, right? Which blows my mind that it's the one, pro, one of two programmatic areas that has consistently a waste, wait list for our community. We often talk about the stigmatization of mental health within the South Asian diaspora, but from a, a service provider perspective, we definitely have a wait list for members of our community. So that speaks volumes to like how we've been able to destigmatize. It's hard to hear so many people need it, but also on the flip side, it's amazing that people are now reaching out to get it. I know India is a whole different behemoth of problems, but my parents are there right now. They go every year for like a couple months. And I grew up, and I don't know about you, but I grew up going to India like every year. So like really close to relatives and gakis and gaka and all that stuff. And as, as I've gotten older, obviously our eyes open up more to the realities of childhood and family and relationships. In the past 10 years, I've realized, wow, I feel like every single one of my female relatives, at least, have experienced some kind of abuse in a very obvious way and don't even realize it. I would say like 80% of my relatives. Which is like overwhelming, right? Like at what point in a generation will that stop? I know that the way that we're trying to raise our son, we're very careful about how we interact, the language we use, because we, and then, you know, what he's exposed to, because we both recognize like how violence is perpetuated within, within generations and families. But like one has to be really intentional around that. Yeah. It's equally as important to teach our sons what's right and wrong as our, as our girls, for sure. It has to be both. Yes. And also I think the exposure to violence is just something that we won't tolerate, you know, like whether it's microaggressions or yelling or like just deep inequity within like a family unit, like we just won't, we won't allow for it. We won't stand for it. I mean, everything starts at the home. Yeah. 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 What we want to model for our children. Out of curiosity, I don't know how old your kids are. Would you ever share with them your experiences? He's four and a half. At some point, I think he'll need to know. And he, he definitely like understands that mama has like a very different type of job, but I will share when he's ready. Yeah. And like, there were certain things that were hidden from me, from my family until like much later in adulthood. And it was really painful when I learned of those particular forms of like our family secrets. And it was under the guise of protectionism. And I hadn't learned about certain things till I was in my thirties. That was very painful. I felt like there was a, a level of deception there, but I knew it was coming from a good place, but I don't think I would wait that long for Dill. I hope you know you're not alone in that. I feel like, unfortunately, and again, I can only compare South Asian families with each other, but you are one of the many friends, including myself, that has had to go through that, to learn about things later on in life and feel kind of betrayed. And that's why I go back to... Look, I love our culture. I love being South Asian. I love being Indian, all of that. Obviously, I'm doing this freaking podcast. <laughs> but I, I have anger towards our culture. And I grew up also being Hindu, very religious, going to Hindu camps and this and that. But I'm realizing I, I have some anger towards our, 
I don't know if you want to call it, maybe culture is the wrong word. Society, the way we were raised. And on a side note, you know, I was very lucky to grow up in a pretty peaceful childhood. For me, it was little subtle things, I think, that affected me. But I'm finding myself distancing myself from, I mean, I still do the cultural things. I still obviously hang out with South Asians. I have a ton of friends, but I don't know. I have this kind of annoyance, anger, sadness towards our people, our society a little bit. And I think when I hear stories from India and think about the way a lot of us have grown up here, even as Americans, like you said, we're not a violent, more violent community. It has to do some, with something else, with the way that our family dynamics are. And so I think I'm still grappling with how I feel about the South Asian community in a way. Yeah. Do you feel like you're more acutely aware of like toxicity and how it shows up in our community? Yeah, definitely. I think that's one thing. And also, I probably grew up with rose-colored glasses where I thought everything was perfect and our communities were perfect and our everything about us, South Asians, were so much better than everyone else. So I definitely grew up thinking that way. So I think getting older and learning more, def- everything hit me harder, I think, more so than someone that hadn't gone through that. And yeah, I think I'm now trying to understand for my kids what I want. What I want. I mean, of course, want them to learn stuff, but I'm having a very interesting relationship with being South Asian and what that means. I mean, it's it's really about thinking. Like, I think what's really beautiful about the South Asian American experience, or any like sort of diasporic or immigrant experience, is that we get to blend it into like what is healthy in this space, right? And taking the best of both identities or multiple identities and crafting something new. And it'll continue to evolve, right? Like this generation's going to teach us something. Oh, yeah. They're already teaching teaching me yeah. things. My girls are 10 and 7, and I'm like, are you guys smarter than me already? Like, what's happening? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so quickly, you had mentioned, I know you said, and of course, Sucky, you want Sucky to do so much more. Sucky, there's so much more that you guys are planning. What are the long-term goals? Like, what do you see? New programs happening? What would you like to see? Oh, goodness. We are uh, turning 35, or we have turned 35 this year, which is pretty amazing. You're so- 35, yay, congrats. I was like, you're so young, 35. I wish I was 35 again. Trust me. Same here, same here. (laughs) So we're the second oldest organization of our kind in the country. So this feels like a a really historic moment for our community. We are ringing the New York Stock Exchange closing bell on March 1st. Yay, that's amazing. Which is the first day of Women's History Month. I have to fact check this. So please, with a caveat, I think we might be the first South Asian survivor organization in the country to ring the bell. So that's a first for our movement, potentially. And our gala is happening April 26th. It's That's my birthday. Gonna be, is it really? You should come celebrate it in New York City. I'm turning, so I'm turning 35. So. <laughs> so you should definitely come. <laughs> It's going to be an incredible night. We're honoring Purna Jagannathan, who's from the show Never Have I Ever, as well as Mohammed Amin, who's the founder and executive director of the Caribbean Equality Project. Roger Kumari, who is yep. an artist, uh, is performing. She's on the podcast. Oh, that's amazing. I'm going through this midlife crisis. So I'm really into like very young South Asian music right now. Uh, <laughs> I've been going through a midlife crisis for like seven years, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah. uh. So, so, um, so I'm like really into DJs for some reason. Anyway, so <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> you've heard you listen to DJ Caper, right? 
Yeah, yeah. Actually, we know her. Uh, we know her husband really well. Her husband was at our wedding. She's amazing. Yeah. I wish we could afford her, but no, we can't. But I'm really into Indo Warehouse and Jaiwo. Oh, Kanal's an old friend of mine from UT. Oh, okay. And then for years, 35 to 40, you know, I've been thinking very much like long-term, what does the organization look like? Do we have the opportunity to scale? So we're thinking a bit more consciously about that. And what could scalability look like for the work that we do beyond being just within New York City? So it's something we're exploring. Okay. Well, I would love, we'll talk offline, but I would love to help in some way, whatever I can with the podcast. So let's, let's figure out some fun collab ideas for sure. Of course, people can find you guys, support you guys, can go to the website. Any other ways to support? You can go to sucky.org and come to our gala on April 26th. It's going to be at the Glass House, which is like a gorgeous venue. Or you can make a donation if you want to learn how to volunteer or get involved. You could reach out to us. All the information's on our website. And actually, are you guys all over the U.S. now? Do you have like volunteers all over now? Because the world is so much smaller post-COVID, we do have volunteers across the country, but our work is primarily here in New York City. And I actually skipped the one question, last question I want to ask you on this. Obviously, you've been doing this now for seven years, been wanting it for 22 years now. Um, what one thing did you wish you knew when you started? Oh, I know. It's really hard I to narrow it down to one thing. It's or really five. hard to narrow it. Uh, <laughs> I'll be totally like vulnerable here. Oh, like, I love super it. Vulnerable. That's all. That's my jam. I suffer from anxiety, like legit, like have had to work through it as a trauma response. And so when I started this job, I was really, and I still do this today though, less so, create a false sense of urgency and everything is in crisis and everything needs to be done immediately. And I get overwhelmed with anxiety around it. And something someone once said to me when I first started in this role within like my first six months was, you know, the survivors that we work with live in crisis, but this organization and you don't have to. So I think I have to like work around a lot of like that anxiety and stress that I feel and like when to accelerate and when not to. So like the first few weeks of COVID, yeah, we definitely need to accelerate our work. We need to like respond quickly. We're, we're, we're essential workers. We have to have a team on the ground providing food to members of our community. We have to do cash distribution. We have to do it all. And we did it. And then there are moments where like that level of response isn't necessary. And I just have to be conscious of that, like more conscious of that. So that's, like one thing. And then the other is like to be more candid about what like one is internally struggling with when making, especially like really large decisions and bringing people into the process. And then the third is like building a strong team, like quick. I wish I like had that capacity at that point in time to like build my team faster. I did, I, I was under a lot of pressure in my early days to sort of respond to the urgency of the moment. And I wish I spent more time internally. And I think that would have I would have appreciated that more. I would have felt less lonely. Right. Well, you know, having gone through trauma yourself and now in this role, I'm assuming you must have a greater sense of empathy than someone that hasn't gone through it. And you must, I, I wonder how you protect yourself sometimes from sucking all the energy in to yourself, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I don't, do much client work anymore. Like very rarely am I doing cases, just like just a handful a year. Although I definitely have people reaching out to me once every few weeks, 
asking, you know, how to navigate through particularly difficult situations. And so part of my responsibility is to support in, in whatever way I can. Therapy helps. Good for you. Good for you. Amazing for you to, to start that. So that's yeah, a good yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've been in therapy within like a year of starting this job. I, I found right. my therapist and everyone who I work with knows about Tony. And so- I, might, I might get Tony's number. <laughs> she, she's game changing. But there are cases that have really haunted me, even while in this role. I started my career after Tucky. I worked at New York Asian Women's Center, which is now called Womankind. And I was working directly with survivors. And so I haven't done that level of work since then. But there are cases that have happened. There was a, a, a death of a member of the community back in the summer of August of 2022, Mandeep Kaur. She died yeah. by suicide. And I still think about that case pretty regularly. And I think about the experience that she had, the isolation she, she, she endured. And her particular situation of violence went viral online shortly after her death. And so that, that continues to haunt me. Yeah. You must take it home sometimes, that heaviness, right? You can't always, it's, I'm sure you've learned how to separate it at times, but like you said, there must be these cases that stay with you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We live in a, like a small two bedroom. And so like, it's not like, you know, we're, we're constantly navigating through space when I'm working from home, but I know it, it definitely weighs on me, but I also feel like Something I've been able to do, something you said earlier about like, you know, when you were in your awkward phase, you know. Still am, I was younger, still am. <laughs> <laughs> but now I like. When I was younger, I learned to sort of tap into, like there's a difference between rage and anger, right? Rage is blinding. Anger is like, I think healthy, a healthy emotion sometimes. And I was able to tap into like anger to use it as a means of fueling and like moving forward in acceleration for myself. And so like these moments in which I feel particularly like impacted by the work. What's also coming up for me oftentimes it's like anger at like what is happening in our community, what feels overwhelming. Just when I feel like I have nothing left, I'm just kind of like, but we have to keep going. My job is to support the colleagues that I work with, right? Like my job is to simply fuel their work because they're really the, the people who like make it all happen. I try to think of myself more in the background, right? Because I just want to like push their work forward. Right, right. That's amazing. Well, I appreciate you being open about everything. I want to create a safe space for, for guests. So, for, so thank you for that. Fast round. This is the fun part. All okay. right. So first, first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. Ultimate collab for this year. Anyone? Deepika from Live Tinted. I think that's very doable. I'm sure you know tons of people that know her. Right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm just right. putting it out there. Put it out there. Put it, put it out there in the universe. Best concert and why, but I think you answered it. But if it's not you too, what else? I was like, wait, oh, I, no, just, is, I, just saw, I just saw that one. I was like, I think she answered this already. <laughs> it is you too. I wouldn't say it was this tour. There was a tour where, um, and Fish, I wish I remembered which one it was because, like I said, I've been to eight or nine concerts where we won backstage passes, but then we got to go on the stage right before they performed. And this was at MSG. And Did you lick the stage? Did you lick it? No, like, but you- we saw everybody except for Bono. My sister got to try on like Edge's guitar. It was just, it was pretty magical. Okay. Yeah. I can't even, that's, that's magical for me. And I wasn't even there. That's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Dinner party with three people dead or alive. My mom, my husband, and Dylan. 
I love it. Biggest pet peeve. Right now, it's this is going to sound so stupid, but I really get annoyed when people use you language. What, which language? Like you like, like I constantly am checking myself. Like I, I feel like I'm, I'm like constantly saying, like coming from my perspective versus like using you language. I don't know why, but like in the last four months, it's really annoyed the shit out of me. Okay. I hope I didn't do that. Cause I have no, no you, didn't, you, didn't, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't. As I say I the like, word oh, you shit. 20 times. Um, <laughs> but like, I don't I'm know like, why. hey, do I need to edit this podcast no, episode? No, no, no. Okay. I was okay. like, just take ownership of your language. I like that. That's a good one. Oh, thank you. Something to be aware of. Now i got to rewind all my 150 episodes. What is your biggest fear? Of death of people around me. Like the passing people around me, yeah. Alternate reality, if you weren't doing this. Uh, fashion. That was quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have this side hobby of like designing coats for myself. What? Because That's amazing. Because I need a creative outlet. So it's a stressful job. Wait, so, so you design coats? Yeah. I You're going like to have to send me of, a pic of this. I'm going to have to post, well, if you allow me to. I want to see, see, I want to see some sure. of your coats. Yeah, sure, I'll send you a photo of something I wore in Vegas. That's amazing. <laughs> Is it, do, you, do you do like patches? Like what's, what's your jam? Like what's your vibe no, with no, coats? No, no, no. It's just like, it's a very standard fit. It's just like the cut I really love and just like, I have a bunch of these coats. Like, I think I have four or five now at this point. I may, may, I may order one from you. You have to make me a tuckered out podcast one. <laughs> sure. I don't know what you charge, but you let me know, okay? <laughs> I don't know if you have a bucket list, but if you do, what's one thing you want to check off this year? Oh my gosh. One thing off of my bucket list. I've started exercising and I've started to like run a little bit, but I'm like a lead do running. So I would love to try to run, run like five miles in one day. Like oh my in gosh, one we're shot. like twins. We're like twin sisters. So I'm, <laughs> my, my goal is to run half a marathon. Just half. That's if I can. amazing. That if is I can. amazing. So I started running. I started running about six months ago and I'm a lead do too with running. I look like an idiot. I was never a runner. I was always like, I played sports, but never did like, yeah, not no like work, proper workout. I'm up to four and a half miles. Oh, but it, it took me a while. I started like, yeah, six, seven months ago. I'm dying by the fourth mile, but I got there. So I'm trying by the end of this year to get to oh 13. Oh my God. Do I you know. also do strength training with the running? Yeah. Like, yeah, I think that, after I 40, girl, you have to. Yeah. Like before 40, I would do the Peloton or run and the calories would be fine. Like it would be no issue. And now it, if I just run, I'll like gain more weight. Like it makes no sense. I'm like, this is just stupid. <laughs> so like I do, I do weights with, with the running. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's kind of like half, half an, I do running one day, weights one day, running one day, weights one day. Yeah. That's what uh, I guess the, the thing is. Yeah. Honestly, it's obviously to feel, to, you know, the weight, the calories, but I'm just a better, I'm just nicer mom. Otherwise I'm such an, I can be such an asshole. So I'm like, I need to be nice to my, I'm doing it for my kids to be nice and my husband. I'm like, I need to be nice. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm yeah. definitely a kinder person after. Yeah. For yeah sure. Sorry. What were you saying? You were starting the, oh, what, the my, weights? Oh, my son. I've been doing like, like uh, weights on my arm. So I've been showing Dylan and he's like, mama, that's just fat. It's not muscle. And I'm just like, <laughs> it's great for my ego. Um. Don't you love our kids? My girls, pretty, they pretty much slap me on my ass every day just saying, ooh, chunky, ooh, bouncy. And I'm like, can I call my kids an asshole? Is that bad? <laughs> 
Tuckered Out is hosted by me, Ami Tucker. This episode is produced by Jeannie Media with Jeannie Saraswathi, Ashley Tuff, Micah Sweetman, Hans Andres, and Laura Radescu. You can follow me at Tuckered Out Podcast on Instagram. And please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts.